Okay, it's now four o'clock, so we will call this special meeting of the Shawnee Mission School District Board of Education to order here on Wednesday, September 9th. Our first item on our agenda is the Pledge of Allegiance. So if you would all rise with me. Pledge of Allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. The next item on our agenda is the adoption of the agenda. I'll seek a motion to adopt the agenda. So moved, Goodburn. Thank you, Ms. Goodburn. Is there a second? Second. second. Thank you, Dr. Sinclair. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Are there any opposed? Hearing none, it passes unanimously, and we move on to our discussion items. Our first discussion item for this evening is the 2.01 reopening plan update, and I will turn that over to you, Dr. Fulton. Okay, thank you very much, and great to see everybody uh, this afternoon. Thanks for uh, coming on such short notice. I want to give you uh, an update on uh, a topic that we've been discussing for the last couple weeks, really, and that is moving our students at the elementary level from remote into in-person learning. And so today, we shared with staff and with parents our plan to uh, begin that process. The, uh, the district has plans to phase in our elementary students grades pre-K through six into full on-site learning. The district's gonna follow the, has been following the JCDHE gating criteria as you know, we started off the, the year uh, more restrictive. They do allow for in-person learning, and that is our goal, is to get to in-person learning. And so we're going to um, go ahead and update our, our gating criteria accordingly so that everyone recognizes that's our goal and that's, that's their destination we're heading toward. Um, we are going to remain with um, an on-site learning model unless... JCDHE requires remote learning for all students right now. That's when we get to very high levels of transmission of COVID-19. And then due to the change in the gating criteria, the district's uh, is following. We're going to have parents uh, We're gonna make sure and give them an opportunity to select the learning model for their students for the remainder of the school year that they feel best works for them. If they want to stay remote only, they can stay there. If they would like to move to in-class, they can. If they are currently in class, but they have concerns about that, knowing that we could be hybrid or have all students in class, then they can change to remote. And I'll talk about that in a second. Um, parents uh, will receive, have received their letter from the parent. Uh, from Parents have received a letter from the school district. They're just getting that. And that's gonna include the opportunity, opportunity for them to make that change. Um, and so we are giving them until uh, Sunday, September 13th. And folks have had an opportunity to kind of experience remote this week. Everybody knows kind of what in-learning, in-classroom learning looks like. So we want to make sure that we give them some time to think about what they would like to do and contact their school if they have questions. If they do not want to make a change, they're, they're not going to have to complete the form. They can just stay right where they are and they don't have to do anything. The letter to families communicates that while the goal is to minimize classroom teacher assignments, there may be some need for student assignments to be adjusted, such as uh, preschool sections, AM, PM may also potentially change. We just don't know how many people may want to make a switch. Until we know that, we won't be able to settle uh, all, the, all the teaching assignments in place. 
There may be a few isolated cases where, uh, that are above, where we have class sizes above classroom guidelines, and these classes are gonna be adjusted as the district transitions to the on-site plan. So if we're a little bit high in a few spots now, we'll get that smoothed out when this transition occurs. The elementary uh, reopening plans will be adjusted to make sure that we're aligning with a three to six foot distance. You know, uh, JCDHE has some really good guidelines that, we're, that they suggest that we follow when we're doing in-classroom instruction. And part of that is maintaining that three to six foot distance in terms of uh, typical student interaction. Six foot is, is in a hybrid model works really well. So that's, that's in a hybrid model that's easy to do. When you start to put all students in the class, it can, it can get a little more, more challenging because it depends on the number of students you have in the class and the amount of square footage in the classroom. Those are things that we're gonna have to try to smooth out as best we can. And in some cases, we may have to add some, uh, some staff in order to make that work. We'll know exactly what processes we're gonna to have to follow once we get all the numbers in. So let me talk about that uh, just really quickly here. This week, we're uh, announcing the change and giving parents an opportunity to change their choice. The week of September 14th and September 21st will stay remote. What's happening in those two weeks is we're getting, we're taking all that student, that parent information under selections and we're beginning to do the scheduling piece of it. Looking at where do we need to place students, where do we need staff, what adjustments might be needed. Then we'll be able to work on communicating that out the week of September 28th through October 2nd, where we'll stay remote. Now there is a little bit of an issue going on there on September 22nd, because that's when the, case, the, the county's gonna come out with their updated gating criteria. And of course, that's following the Labor Day weekend. So we'll have a better idea then of whether or not we need to stay remote, which is possible. If, if the gating criteria get to that point, or uh, we can begin to make that transition into in-classroom learning. So by the end of the week of September 28th, we'll have all the new schedules out, and uh, the week of October 5th, we'll start hybrid with the new schedules in place. October 12th will be hybrid. Now hybrid for October 5th, we'll have uh, in-person for uh, students pre-K through two, give some of the younger uh, children an opportunity to adjust. Uh, then the students in grades three through six will join them the week of the 12th, and then the week of the 19th, then we'll begin the process of transitioning students in and whole, and we'll start with the youngest grades. Again, I think the, the biggest challenge that we face for on-site learning for all students really goes back to uh, number of students in a class and square footage. And so that's, that's a piece we're gonna to have to address and we'll make sure that if, if we have to do some prioritization that happens in those younger grades because it's really important for those younger children to get in. That is substantively an overview of what we're doing for elementary. I, I'll, I'll make a couple of comments on secondary real quick and then be happy to respond to any questions you might have. At the secondary level, we're still remote. And the reason for that is, is that unlike the elementary level where we can cohort students, that's difficult to do at the secondary level when you're moving from class to class. And be, as we know, because of the specialized nature of subjects, uh, you need classrooms that have, that can accommodate 
the learning that you're doing. Science classrooms is one example. And so it's difficult to cohort, for lots of reasons, it's difficult to cohort secondary students. Uh, and that's a bit of the glitch in trying to get to on-site learning for secondary students in, when you have higher rates of transmission. Now, having said that, we are work, working with the county to uh, think of ways that we might be able to do on-site learning even with higher transmission rates. But honestly, that's where things like testing and other kinds of strategies yet to be introduced uh, might have to be used in order to make sure that that happens. But that, that's our goal. Uh, our first step is elementary, and we're going to keep working on the secondary piece. Because I know this, everybody wants their, their students in school, their children in school, and I know students want to be in school. Um, but just to reassure folks, we are going to have a remote-only option, and we'll also have an in-school option at elementary. And we're doing this now, because by doing this now, we won't have to do it at the semester mark, which is when we were originally going to do it for elementary. And so it'll be a lot less dis disruption as we go through the year. Okay, with that, if you have any questions for me, I'd be happy to respond to them. And Dr. Hubbard's here, and she can help respond too. Can we just go around the table? And we'll start with Jamie and work our way around. Um, with Thank you for the update, by the way. Um, with regard to programs like our signature program here at the CAA, where there is more room for our secondary kids to socially distance, are they going to stick with that same plan of staying remote? Or since there is more room at the CAA, is there a plan to bring in kids who you know, are in our signature programs into, into the CAA? I'm going to have Dr. Hubbard responded to that. I will say this, at the next, we'll answer that question for sure. At the next board meeting, we are going to spend uh, quite a bit of time on giving you a pretty comprehensive update, too, on the reopening. So some of these issues, if we want to sure. if we address them tonight, we can, or there'll be an opportunity there to sure. go into more depth as well. So for right now, we're still, um, all secondary students would be remote only. Um, as we start to look at the hybrid situation, what that looks like for CAA and really all, I mean, it's not just CAA where we have those spaces. I mean, we have a welding um, at Shawnee Mission West that might be able to do that. So there, mm -hmm. there's some different opportunities for that. Um, we want to be really careful with that in regards to equity because we would have to be providing transportation or we should be providing transportation, right, so that it's an equitable situation for all kids and because it's only for a couple hours and, and trying to match up with homeschool schedules. So, again, just some logistics that we'll need to work out in regards to that. But for right now, all will be remote. I just had a question about asking parents to commit by um, September 13th for the whole year. And um, it feels like, I mean, the school year just started. And yeah. by the 13th, I don't know that parents are going to even have a good idea about how well their kids are handling online and whether they could do it for a full year. It, so what was our reasoning for having them decide this early on for the entire year. Yeah, the problem is is that the longer we wait, the more difficult it is to get students in. And if we're going to have to make changes, particularly with staffing, we really need to do it now. The longer we wait, the more complicated it becomes. It's just think about uh, the teachers that may have to make a change, and we're going to try to reduce that as much as possible. But that's, that's a lot of shifting, and we don't, we don't want to 
be disruptive to the school year. And so that's why. Also, uh, while it's only been a few days here that we've been going remote, um, I think it certainly, as a parent, gives you a little bit of time to think about, you know, what what is it that I really want for the remainder of the year? Because we're assuming that the conditions that we're working with right now are probably going to stay this way for the remainder of the school year. Unless there's a vaccine, not much is going to change. So it really becomes a question of what's my comfort level? Am I comfortable with my child being in school, knowing that we could have all students in? Am I not? I know that's a really hard decision for parents to make, but that's kind of what we're into. So my question is about the, the communication that went out to families today. So in skimming it, am I to presume that it's primarily only directed towards the pre-K through six families because everything else stays the way it's been before, seven through 12? That's correct. That's um, correct. Because Johnson County allows us to bring pre-K through six in in a whole now they do have guidelines and we're going to follow those. So that will determine our ability to do that uh, in every case. But, but that's why we're doing it with pre-K through six. We are also following their guidelines for secondary, which right now has us remote only while we're in red. But I know that they, in our discussions, we're, we're trying to think through how can we do that? Uh, how might we be able to do, for example, hybrid models safely at the secondary level when you're in the red gating criteria. So just one little piece as I absorb this letter. So the week of October 19 to 23, it says transition to all in-person begins. I guess I would like to tag onto that. I know it's already gone out, but for clarification as we communicate going forward, for pre-K through six. That's exactly right. Yeah, because yeah. it's open-ended and I was starting to think, wait a minute, is that also we're transitioning seven through 12 and it's not this point. Right, it's only pre, thank you, it's only pre-K through six, right. that's correct. Thank you. And there was also some discussion about sixth grade and our feeling was, and, and again, this goes back to our conversations with the county health department, is um, the fact that we felt it was important to keep our, six, our, our elementaries whole. Um, now, it may be, as you can see with that transition piece, we may have some grade levels that are all, where all the students are attending and others that may still be hybrid as we transition into this model. And so that's, that's a function of what we can actually pull off and at what, at what, uh, at what rate of speed. So we're, we're just going to continue to methodically go through this and make sure we get it right. What we're, what we're really want to avoid is something we talked about back in July and August, and that's we don't want a yo-yo effect. We don't, we don't want to start and then stop. You know, you start all in, then you've got to come back to remote. We'd like to build sustainability into our plan so that we can keep students in. That would help parents with planning quite a bit. So that's, that's our hope and our goal. I think the increase of testing may, at some point down the road, help with that effort as well. Okay, sorry. Um, so I would like to direct my question um, towards your opening explanation of the letter that went out to parents, our elementary parents and part of the impetus behind this. Um, I, I think what I heard you say is that due to change in gating criteria, and I know that I don't mean to quibble about semantics, but I would just ask that you maybe expand upon that. My understanding is that we didn't change, gating criteria didn't change per se, but we chose to start 
within that circle more conservatively in order to not only get kids in school, but keep kids in school, yeah, keep we, our staff healthy. And so this is more about clarification of implementation, which may to some parents read like a change. Right, when we, we adopted the Just County uh, gating criteria, and it allows in both red and yellow for all students to be in school. We started the school year uh, more restrictively and that was uh, for several reasons, and that's really laid out in the letter. Mm -hmm. And so, um, talking about the well-being of staff and students and community, and also <coughs> making sure that we had a predictable schedule starting out, as well as readiness. Mm -hmm. So, now we're at a point where uh, we can begin to move from where we're at to where ultimately the county does allow us to be, which is to have all students in school. And so this is a transition into that model, knowing that um, COVID-19 could be with us for quite a while. Mm -hmm. So we want to build sustainable models that will keep us in school. Dr. Fulton, I'd like to add to that just a little bit. Dr. Sinclair, in one of our original reopening plans, we did have an SMSD gating criteria chart mm -hmm. that has been published on our website. Mm -hmm. And there we did say that we would not attend in red and remote. And so parents did make decisions based off of that SMSD gating criteria chart and often refer to it. So I, I think in the change that it was intended to be that we are going to follow Johnson County. That's what our resolution says. And while we were more in re restrictive in the SMSD chart that we're, we're going to follow um, at this point, well, and all along, actually, but we, we started more restrictive, but we're, we're moving towards the Johnson County gating criteria. I, thank you both for just providing a little more explanation around that. I appreciate it. Thank you. Um, so my question is when we hit 15% um, and then we're in black and then it reverts back to everyone being fully remote. Right now at this juncture, there's not a plan for even operating in hybrid for elementary once we enter black. Once we get into that 15% and above, that's yeah. what the count, current county gating criteria calls for, is for everything to be remote. So, you know, that would be the only thing at the elementary level that would cause us, that we can see now, that would cause us to go back to remote. Unless, and this, unless you have a, a folks that may be at a classroom level or a school level or quarantined. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, uh, we should be able to stay in class, at, ideally in whole, but at least hybrid. Because I think at five weeks ago when we adopted it, we were below 10%. We were at like 9.4, yeah. we were like that. And I think today was, was 12.6. Right. right. So that's so a that's... trajectory that if we were to maintain we'd be, it's, if, it's possible that we will be hitting 15%. If it, if it took us into remote, then we would follow that criteria. Okay, yeah, thank you. Hopefully we'll hit there and we can keep students in class, so. So if I'm a parent and I chose remote only for the first semester, now we're asking parents to just go back and redo their, like if they wanna do it for the whole school year, is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, if, they, if you chose remote only for the semester, semester, then what we're asking you to do is, that's, that's fine, you can stay there. Okay, yeah. But, but the selection will be for the school year because, again, the disruption that occurs in staffing and learning, 
you know, you're, you're having to constantly switch students and staff around. And, you know, that's not the nature of elementary schools. And elementary schools are built on relationships. So. so this is the time, though. I just wanted to make it clear in case people are watching out there. So if they chose remote for the first semester, now is the time that they need to, right. to register their... So do, if they want to continue in remote, do they do nothing? Or do they, ha do they need if to they, go back? And, and because they haven't told us what they want to do second semester yet. Um, well, they can, if they do nothing, then they will just stay right where they're at, okay. remote only or in class. If they would like to make a change for the remainder of the year, then they can go back and make that change now. Okay. So and when does that change then take place for those, for those kids? So that's, chose... we would start the new schedule uh, the week of October 5th. Okay. So we've got a couple weeks there where we, we get all the numbers in, we, we make the changes, and then we've got a, a week where we're communicating out, and then the week of uh, October 5th, then we bring the students in, hybrid, K, uh, pre-K through 2. The uh, older students would stay remote that week, but with their new schedule. And then we bring the older students in the week of October 12th through 16th, and then the week of the 19th, then we begin to transition into... Okay. I just wanted to make sure that was clear for the kids that were remote right now, students that are remote. Right. Too. Okay, thanks. Right. I just have a couple... I want to clarify um, that this is not something that you need the board to take action on or vote on because it is consistent with the original reopening resolution that we approved July 27th. Correct. So this is just a point of information for the board, and many of these operational decisions will continue to be made by you as the superintendent of our district. Yes, that's correct, yeah. Can you help me understand as a board member which of those decisions, like when it will require something coming back to the board? Because I know we're having further conversation in this meeting about activities and athletics, and I want to make sure I understand when something does or doesn't need to come back to the board for a vote. Yeah, great question. If, if, for example, through the board resolution, I'm given the authority to make a decision, like, for example, working within the Johnson gating criteria, then I can go ahead and make those operational decisions. If, however, a decision falls outside of that resolution or the gating criteria, then I would have to come to the board for approval. This one, this one falls within, the next topic falls outside of it, so... Should we go around again, or is everyone good with this update? I can go around again. Okay, I'm, I'll just keep it going. Ms. Bergman? Oh, you're good. Oh, I thought you were saying yes. I have more questions. I'm, Reverend Guy? I just have more clarification, sorry. Um, so did this letter just go out to elementary parents, or did it go out to all parents? It went out to elementary parents. Okay. So uh, families that just have secondary students, do they still have to decide for the full year by September 13th? No. Okay. No, this only impacts uh, pre-K through six uh, students. They okay. do not, it's, it's, it's only that level. Again, because at the secondary level, under the current gating criteria, we are uh, required to be remote uh, for now. Hopefully we can find ways to, to, to operate uh, secondary schools in at least a hybrid model, but for now we're we're remote. So this is only pre-K through six. Okay, that's all I had. To follow up on Mrs. Owsley's question about uh, should we revert backwards and go into the 15% or more area, the black, 
do we also have the 14-day transition requirement as opposed to, it wouldn't just happen overnight, would it be also a 14-day transition back to full remote? That's a really good question, and that is something where we would seek guidance from the county. Right. Um, they certainly have the uh, responsibility for, for public health, yeah. and if we were to get guidance that we needed to immediately go into remote, then we would, we would do that, but that would only, only if we had to because that makes it really hard for families to plan. Now this first one coming up on the 22nd, since everybody's remote right now anyway, it would not, it might be frustrating, but at least you're already doing that, so you, you, you have plans. But uh, yeah, we'll, we'll ask for guidance from the county on that. Thank you. Dr. Sinclair? Um, I was just gonna, well, no, I don't have a question. I was gonna make a comment. Okay. Um, um, I, I'm probably not alone in expressing my appreciation for our um, elementary um, administrators and teachers, uh, you know, doing their best to keep up with implementation of um, our guidelines and providing adequate and equitable educational opportunities for all their kiddos. So I just wanted to acknowledge that. I, I, I want to thank you for doing that. You know, it's... Um, we're in quite a age of change, aren't we? Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, flexibility is really key to success going forward for all of us. But I kudos to our staff who have uh, started off the year remote, and I'm really impressed with what I'm seeing. And I know that this is uh, can be somewhat disruptive. Having taught elementary myself, I understand. And so it's it's a big deal to be doing this right mm -hmm. now. But I appreciate all their work and now they're getting the year off to a good start but as we move through this transition uh, hopefully by doing this now it'll give us stability for the remainder of the year and help us to have a really really good rest of the 2021 school year mm -hmm. um, I know you've had a lot of conversations with JCDHE and Dr. Ariola, and one of the things that broke last week was the availability of some saliva testing and that they were gearing up to order more of that and that they are working on a plan with the six Johnson County School Districts to utilize, um, I don't know if you can call it rapid when it's still a two-day test, but at least the two-day is much more rapid than the current seven to ten days waiting for results. Have you found out any more information as to how they're going to implement that with regards to um, testing for the schools and how that's going to be available for us? Or um, is that is it coming and we just don't have the details yet? Yes, uh, I do not have the details yet. I know that they are still working on securing the volume of tests that would be necessary to do a robust testing program. And so I anticipate as they get more information, uh, both from the county and the state level, that I have no doubt they'll be putting a, a plan together that will involve the school districts and, and try to get to more testing. It really is very key because if we know what the rates of transmission are, across our school district, as a, even, as a, even as a sampling, it really gives us a much better idea of what we need to be doing to make sure that our students and our staff are safe and to get practices that align with, um, with what's possible given the rate of transmission. And that's one reason right now we're, we're just approaching this from an abundance of caution. Thank you. Ms. Goodburn, you good? I'm just interested in how we communicate. I feel like um, 
one of the most important things for families is not only, I know it's impossible to know what can happen, so having some level of flexibility is really important, particularly if you've chosen to be in person for your kids. But I've gotten a lot of questions from families saying, what is the district looking at to help guide these decisions? Is it, which numbers is it? And I think for a long time it really was the numbers, but getting a plan like this sort of sets out a different course where it's more on operational ability to deliver safe in-person education. So I think I'm just pushing us to make sure that we're as clear with families as we can possibly be about not necessarily what's gonna happen next, but what we're looking at to help inform the decisions that we're making on the operational side because um, you know, early on the message was very much what happens in our community will dictate what can happen in our schools. And now I think this is a little bit different where we have just a defined time frame, which I appreciate. I feel very strongly that we need to get our elementary kids in particular into schools as much as possible, as quickly as possible which the health department has said is not only fine but encouraged. So I'm glad we're moving in that direction, but I think helping communicate to families how we're making our decisions and what we're looking to to guide them would be really, really helpful. That may be something as we do updates for you as a board, we can talk about that in a little bit more in depth. So it's not a mystery to people. Yep. That'd be great. Nice. Okay, great. Well, there... I have one more question. Did, okay. uh, did I hear you right that September 22nd, the county is releasing new gating criteria? Well, they're, they're... Release, releasing where we are. Okay. <laughs> uh, sorry, it's not new gating criteria. I apologize. They're giving us an update on where we are in the gating criteria. Thank you. So the label of sort of which zone we're in between red, yellow, Correct. and green will happen roughly uh, every month. Is that the, like, how often will the county be making those updates? Typically, typically monthly, they'll give us updates. Yes. Yeah, so that's, thank you for that okay, clarification. Well, got it, Not new gating criteria, just <laughs> where are we in the gating criteria. Um, okay, so we're moving on to item 2.2, activities and athletics. Um, and I will again just shoot it straight over to you, Dr. Fulton. Okay, uh, I'd like to start with um, an update. Uh, let's see, if you can... Turn that back on. Okay, to, let me give you some context for our discussion tonight on activities and athletics. As you know, Johnson County Department of Health has given us uh, specific guidance for uh, basically running school. I mean, we are part of an interconnected community. It's about Shawnee Mission, but it's about all the other school districts in Johnson County, and indeed, our entire region working together to address the issue of COVID-19. We've made a commitment to, to work closely with the County Health Department to ensure that our practices align with what we know will help to mitigate the impact of this pandemic. Today, we received some updated information from uh, Dr. Ariola, who is the Director of the Department of uh, Health and Environment, and you can see uh, what he delivered to us here, and I'm gonna to have to turn around so I can read this. But basically, here's what he says. I understand the importance of extracurricular activities in the school setting. I'm okay with SMSD proceeding with sports and extracurricular activities. There are currently several teams playing in the community and businesses are open. No matter the sports that are played, high risk, medium, or low risk, please ensure that the appropriate safety precautions uh, are there to minimize risk, 
Steps that include cohorting to minimize the number of contacts, preventive random sampling, limiting spectator attendance to immediate family members, and monitoring symptoms are key steps that help reduce risk. And then treating athletic teams as cohorts is especially important so they're not a source of introduction of virus into schools. They should know that not following the rules may affect their opportunity to play. So what he has done uh, in this correspondence to us is given us very specific, uh, very specific pathway and guidance when it comes to engaging our, our students and activities in athletics. We are the only school at the moment that is not engaged in activities in athletics. We understand the importance of it. And we also under, absolutely understand the importance of being a good partner in public health. And so with that, I'm going to have um, Dick Kramer, who's our director of activities in athletics, do a quick overview for you of all of the protocols that we've already established to address safety issues in our, uh, in our school district. Pleasure to be here again. Um, just building on the information that was just provided, I want to share with you, and I think it's important that you see what we're doing. We've talked about it, but I think it's important that you see that we're following these guidelines. And when you look at this document, and this document is to provide guidance to our staff and coaches and sponsors and protocols for all our fall activities. It's rather extensive, it's robust, and um, it's a challenge. But we've met this challenge. I want you to understand that we've done this since June 15th. And we started it again on August 17th. So we have practiced these protocols, have been successful in our practicing of them, and I'm confident if we do get the opportunity to move forward, we will do them in earnest and with fidelity. And that's the responsibilities that each one of our athletic directors has, coaches, players. They all have a responsibility to follow these guidelines. And I want to show you those tonight to know that if we do get the opportunity, you will feel comfortable with that uh, information that you have. And I want to go down and I want to start with these links. And the first one is going to be the 13 points of best practice. And this was developed using a number of resources, or Johnson County Department of Health and Environment, the Kansas Department of Health and Environment, National Federation of High School, CASHA. And it's constantly talking about COVID facts. We think, in speaking to some of your concerns, educating our stakeholders in what COVID is. So through this document and through these links, you're going to see that constant reminder and awareness of COVID. And if we don't have that personal responsibility and we don't understand it, then we could risk exposure rates higher than we want. And I'm not going to read all of these to you because you'll have access to them, but I want you to know how extensive this is. And then we have our protective measures, and we really have 13. And again, just looking at the first one, it talks about arriving at practices, leaving practices, talking about that bubble or cohort group. We really would recommend that we don't carpool. Families travel together, or you travel single. You don't want to be in carpools if you can not help it. It's highly recommended not to. And when you're in that car, you're wearing a mask and doing the best you can to social distance in those seats. 
Again, you're bringing your own water, bo uh, water bottle, drinking fountains, and common water stations will be used with supervision, meaning we have these water cows. We're just not going to let everybody go to them. There'll be a supervisor there with the student will be supervised filling up their own water bottle to go back to the activity. Um, and again, a lot of hygiene, washing their hands before they touch their face and mouth after maybe uh, touching a football or a practice imp uh, implement. There'll be plenty of hand sanitizer available for them to do that. Uh, also, there's been a lot of talk about and masking is very important here. You're wearing your mask at all times until you do an exertive type activity. And if that's a scrimmage or a high impact practice, it's recommended you don't have a mask. But if you want to wear one, you still can. No one is telling you you can't, but recommended through the CASIA and other health agencies during exertion, some, a mask is not appropriate. But again, that child, that parent always has the right to wear that mask during competition. So, but it's not mandated and it's not recommended uh, in these protocols. It's doable. Um, we ask our athletes and coaches to keep every kid and keep those athletes in bubbles. Football, whether it's offense, defense, D-backs, offensive linemen, try to keep those cohorts as small as you can. So if there is an exposure rate, not everyone is affected. And we plan to do that, and we hope to do that in every one of our sports so that we can mitigate the spread and the exposure. Um, so that is the 13 pieces there that I think are important. Uh, the other piece is the activity-specific considerations that Keisha provides us. And um, this is done for each fall activity. And I, I want to show you this because it's important to know that if you have a, a child that's in these activities, I want you to know that these will be the mitigation protocols we use during those activities. And this has been approved through CASIA, the National Federation of High Schools. For instance, here's girls' uh, golf considerations. It goes down, and you can assure that we will be doing these in our competitions and in our practices. And it goes down, it spells things out very clear. Um, and again, this is a document you'll be able to go through at your own speed. Here's tennis considerations. Again, we'll be doing all of these in our competition and at practices. Just a reminder, our coaches, ADs, have been working with this document really since June in anticipation of that August 17th date. And in August 17th, Again, we were putting these into practice. So it's something that's not relatively new. We have actually done this, and that's important. Uh, you go down, and we, again, it goes, it's very thorough, and you can see it's very detailed. And that is done for each fall sport. Again, there's cross-country. Uh, I know that we spent a lot of time talking about um, those high-risk sports. And there is a football one here that's extremely uh, um, robust. And, uh, and if we follow it, it should give us every opportunity to stay safe in our activity. There's gymnastics. It's a 36-page document that um, for each activity here, going over all these pieces. And 
So what I'm trying to tell you is that we have looked at the detail, we've been in the weeds, and it's important to know that we are looking out for the safety of every student, athlete, activity, coaches, and families. Um, the next one is the return and general considerations, and this is kind of the document that is used to build all these things that we have in our, um, our document, and it goes over the universal guidelines for personal hygiene. If you look in there, there's a lot of those things that are currently in our document now. Same thing with the education and communication, screening and exposure protocol, illness protocol and activity considerations such as practice and team activities. So again, a number of documents, you need a number of sources to develop these guidelines. Uh, the return to participation guideline, I'm gonna have Shelby speak to this, is the return of a student who should test positive. How do they re-engage in their activity? And I'll have Shelby just share a few things. So again, just to speak to the safety of our athletes, um, Keisha has created return to participation guidelines. So if you've ever had an athlete sustain a concussion, this would be similar to those return to play steps that the athletes must pass before they can be cleared to return to their sport. So Keisha has done an amazing job at creating a document and Dick asked me to review it to overlay it with the Johnson County guidelines and really it matches up very nicely. Our nurses are gonna have no problem working with our athletic trainers and coaches and athletes and their families with this document because it is so similar to what we do for concussion protocol. There are a few differences, but I think very, very minor. Um, a for instance, for that would be that uh, Keisha wants the athletes to be 72 hours fever-free. Johnson County Health Department requires 24 hours fever-free. So we'll work through those things with um, our KU folks who advise us. But again, a great document and um, you know, it really attests to Keisha looking out for the safety of our athletes. So as we go down the document, um, I think it's important if you look at this statement here. For those coaches, sponsors, and student athletes that have a high risk condition, or who are around family members that do, they need to really consider their participation in the activity. They should get with their doctor or family doctor and go over that. And down there I've listed a number of high risk conditions that you might want to consider with your parent about participating in an activity. And I think that's important that you know that there is a risk if we, our athletes uh, participate. Now, what you see here is a QR code, and this was developed by, I believe, a couple coaches from East. And what this does is every athlete, when they report to practice, takes an assessment, a COVID-19 assessment, and I'm sure these players can share with you, they show up, they scan it, name, first and last name, grade, and then they answer four COVID questions. They answer yes to any of those questions. They don't participate, the school nurse is called, and we keep that exposure rate to a minimum. And we're also watching out for our athlete and families by doing this screener. This screener is done every day. Um, when you have time, you can take your phone, read the QR code, and this one here takes you to Shawnee Mission South Volleyball. 
but every school has a sports-specific QR code for their athletes. So they don't walk in that practice field until they've done that QR code. And that's the coach's responsibility to make sure that that happens, and it's the AD's responsibility to make sure that that is being implemented because it's very important that they take that assessment before they walk on that practice field. Again, we, each student is responsible for bringing their own mask. We have purchased masks. They're with the athletic trainer, so if a student should show up without one or need one, athletic trainers will have them to hand out to those students that need them at no cost. We always want to practice uh, social distancing whenever we can. Again, you all bring your own water bottle, clearly marked. We don't want to share those. Locker room considerations, something of great importance. If you use the locker rooms, and I imagine specifically football here in this example, you can't, everybody can't go in there. We have to go in waves. We either go in by class, we can go in by um, year, year in school, seniors first, juniors, and so on. All those lockers have to be social distance. And then it's the responsibility of us to make sure that that is followed. Most sports can come already dressed in our current situation. Football is probably the one that needs that locker room uh, for the pads and, and things like that. Uh, it will be disinfected daily. Every athletic director purchased two misters for their facilities, indoor and out. So that will be taken care of after each practice. And in some cases, in between activities. They'll enter one way into the locker room, they'll exit in another. And I've just given you an example here when afternoon practice starts, how that will work. In this example, this is uh, again from uh, Shawnee Mission South. Travel guidelines, all participants on the bus or van have to be masked. You have to wear your face mask when you travel. Uh, vans, if it's the, one of the newer vans, four students and a driver. An older van is five students and a driver because that's a more bench style. Uh, buses, only 25 will be allowed on the bus with social distancing, and that includes the coaches. We are allowing parents to drive their uh, student to the event with the parent permission. Uh, coaches, they'll drive when they drive a school vehicle such as the van. Uh, we ask parents only drive their, their athlete. And if you do want to drive others, then you have to go through the MVP and MVR check. And know, again, that we're kind of stepping out the bubble when you will go in carpool. We can play any team in the state of Kansas in the metro area, but we are not allowed to spend the night. So that really limits us going somewhere, but someone from any part of the state could come to us. Garden City, Dodge City, Manhattan, Lawrence. For us, I would imagine the farthest we could go is Wichita and be back that night because we're not allowing overnights. Uh, other safety uh, considerations, and that's that, the, the 13 steps that I showed you earlier on that link, and I'll just go down here. Um, continued expectations. Students and adults are expected to monitor their own health and should not participate in the activity or on school property if they tested positive, if the student has been exposed. Again, trying to educate. We put a lot of the symptoms down for you to know. We're not allowing any high fives and fist bumps. And when you get to those activities, such as tennis, golf, no more handshaking at the end of the round. It's maybe a nod. Rackets may touch in tennis. <clears throat> it may be football players lining up across the field from each other and, and recognizing each other. 
but uh, we're trying to do away with that. Again, if you should, some of our athletes and some of our um, students travel and take trips. Uh, again, if it's one of those in the department, I've linked it, but I, I'm not going to go there. But if it's registered, you have to do a 14-day quarantine. So parents, where you go on your trips and where you go could affect where they come when they come back in playing time. They may have to quarantine. Uh, again, we want students to exit and enter in uh, designated doors that will be provided by through the AD and coach. And we're asking that the students do not gather around the facility or parking lot uh, before or after practice, which usually isn't an issue when we're all in school, but since we're remote here for a little bit, they could be showing up early and talking in the, in the parking lot, and we don't want to do that. That's that self-responsibility. If we want to continue to have our activity, then we have to follow those guidelines. It's imperative we do that. Uh, again, once the workouts end, at the end of practice, we're asking those athletes, go home, get in your car, stay in your bubble, stay in your cohort group. Uh, we're asking when parents drop their student off, please stay in the car, drop off, exit around. And we're asking that they don't stay for practice. Yeah. I apologize. Um, I appreciate, I'm sorry to interrupt, this is kind of very unusual and I don't mean to surprise, but um, as, as um, we're, we're working to conduct, we have these remote shades going up and down because that is a sustainable practice and we have students very concerned about what's happening in here, yelling very loudly, which is not a safe practice, very close together. Is there an opportunity at this juncture for Turn. our AD to go ask them to wait patiently, to have faith, and to separate and not continue the risk of spreading the virus as we're trying to... I'm I sorry, think, it's just... I so think distressing if someone could... Uh, they did not hear your no. opening remarks no. and it's, that and the Johnson County epidemiologist announced that he was okay with Shawnee Mission playing. And the coach is now explaining how it's going to be safe. And if I can't hear the coach say how it's going to be Aitha. safe, it's going to be Dr. hard Aitha. to vote to implement what the county epidemiologist said. So it's super frustrating. And coach, thank you. Well, he was coach when I was in high school. So yeah, it's so been a while. It's just, I'm, yeah. I'm just they, they can't hear. The shades do that on their own. It doesn't inspire a lot of confidence that we're going to be really good at maintaining six feet of distance when you look out that window. I just, yeah, I'm, I, can, I totally appreciate their passion and commitment. And I want them to be safe and express themselves safely. And screaming that close together is concerning. They're all wearing masks. And I, I appreciate that. I just don't want to. I'm sorry. Thank you. No, actually, thank you. So, gentlemen, that's, ladies, that's what we're up against. We have to respond to each other and do it correctly. And have if faith in each play, other. We have to do it right. So, um, I, I, would like, I would like to add something. I appreciate the comments. You know, we are in the middle of a global pandemic. What do we know? Here's what we know from 1918. <clears throat> Communities that developed a comprehensive strategy and stuck to it were successful in mitigating the effect of the pandemic on one another. Communities that did not do that had much lower levels of success, and in that case, deaths were higher. If we're going to be successful in Johnson County and in the Kansas City metro area in addressing this pandemic, 
And we want to engage in things that we value in life, school, activity, sports. Then we have to be a team. And I think one of the things that Mr. Kramer is really laying out here is, is that you can engage in activities, but you have to do it under certain conditions. And if you do not meet those conditions, then guess what? You can't do it. And I think that's part of the message here. We talked about that earlier with school. We said we want to get all students into elementary. And we need to do that under certain conditions. We have to figure out ways to do that and make that work. That's okay. That's called problem solving. But when it comes to this, we have to follow the protocols. And one of the things that's critical for all of us, not just Shawnee Mission, but for everybody, is we either row together to address COVID-19 or we aren't going to make it. And you're going to see these rates continue to increase. So that is why we are following guidance from health experts in everything that we're doing. So I'll turn it back over to you with any Thank you. final remarks. Well, I'll say this. Anytime you're given a great opportunity like these young men and women will be given, hopefully, maybe, uh, there comes great responsibility with it. And uh, I think what we saw is what we're up against, is to get everyone to believe and be a teammate and a mm -hmm. team member mm -hmm. of SMSD. And if we follow these to fidelity, we have a great opportunity in front of us to make something good happen. Mm -hmm. um, so that's my challenge to you all. You've got to make this happen. Only you can make it happen. Um, when parents drop off, or again, we're trying to not let them stay, not be visitors, not be spectators. Please drop your uh, son or daughter off, and then and, and please move past the practice facility. Uh, we're not going to provide any towels, uh, no food or food consumption on the practice facility. Uh, we have signage. Those signs will be going up today in all our athletic and activity facilities concerning about wearing face masks, social distancing, and hand washing. So again, constant reminders, trying to make people aware of the importance of following these mitigated uh, protocols. All coaches and sponsors, I think Mrs. Borgman, you asked about the education piece, and I'll just, uh, every coach and sponsor has to take this course. Uh, then they get a, um, and this is the, from the National Federation of High School, and basically it, it speaks to all these things that we have in our guidelines, hand washing, face masking, social distancing, exposure. So. Every coach sponsor has to take this course. They get a certificate at the end. They have to turn that into their AD um, or activities director before they can coach. So another piece to try to secure uh, and let you know that we're trying to do everything in our power to provide a safe environment for our families and athletes. And then at the very end of the day, we want our coaches to be absolutely the last ones to leave the school and practice area to make sure it's been cleaned properly, all our athletes are safe, they've departed, and we do it all over again the next day. So that gives you an idea of what we're doing and what we've been doing in our activities since June 15th and then again on August 17th. So um, that is what we are doing and practicing. So thank you.
And with that, uh, I don't know, do we want to have just a couple of brief comments about uh, music? Yeah. Bill, you want to come up? And because that, that is, that is uh, one of the high-risk areas. So, Good afternoon again, everybody. Bill Thomas. We don't remember each other. Of course, we can't see each other, so it's hard to tell without <laughs> just seeing the eyes. Um, I would tell you that our staff has been amazing and working very diligently to make sure that we can provide uh, music education and performing arts for our students. Um, some of the things, we, we are totally following all the activities guidelines from Keisha, from NFHS. There are a few things that are a little different because of just the area that we're in, but all the mitigation stra strategies that Dick was just talking about, we're a part of all of that. And our staff knows that. A few of us had band camps a few weeks ago, and the QR codes, that's all part of it. Everybody providing their own masks and water and all those things. We follow that to a T, just like the athletes do, because of that point in time, we're athletes too. Um, some of the things that we've talked about over the past couple of months, um, and some few things that we haven't, but the orchestras and theaters, or orchestras and theater programs may rehearse in unaltered schedules. So during the school day, they can meet during class, and they do their thing. In the choir and band areas, a couple of those areas that are considered high risk, they have special strategies that they can only rehearse for 30 minutes at a time, and it's been updated. Now they can take a 10-minute break. They have to leave the area, but it used to be 30 minutes on, 30 minutes off. Now NFHS has come out and said, actually, that can be shortened to 10 minutes as the studies have gotten more robust and they have more information. Um, along with that, um, and that's indoors or out, uh, the district has purchased the HEPA filters, the, super, the scrubbers that we've talked about. Those are in place in the high school and secondary classrooms, high school, middle school, band and choir rooms. Bell covers were recommended for all the wind instruments in the band. Those have been purchased. Those actually showed up today. And so I'll be doling those out to all the band directors so they'll have those. Uh, puppy pads for the brass players to empty their water keys into. Another one of those strategies, they don't want that on the floor, so we bought thousands of puppy pads and cut them up into little eight-inch squares, and those are in all the band rooms, so they're ready for that. And teachers are well aware, they know how to use those. Um, SMSD is an ASCAP member, and that allows us to live stream concerts when the time comes if, if the composition they're performing is from an ASCAP member. I actually have a meeting next week with BMI, who is the second largest um, composer category, if you will, people that composers belong to, and hopefully we can get that in place and that'll open up even more literature so the students can perform that. And again, we can live stream that. Whether or not we can have an audience in the house, we can live stream those concerts. So that will be a, a great boon for us. Um, all of our district music festivals first semester have been postponed because obviously, if you've ever been to the West Area Band Festival, that brings huge crowds that stacks to the ceiling in the gymnasiums and, and that wouldn't be safe. And so we're postponing those till second semester, and we'll see how those end up, and maybe we'll live stream some concerts there as well. We'll just have to take that as it comes. Just got word last night that the district, East Central Kansas, KMAA district, those concerts are being um, turned off this year. We're not going to have those concerts, but the students can still audition for the district band, choir, and orchestra, and that will put them in readiness that they can still audition for the all-state groups in uh, February uh, without a problem. So they're still going to have those opportunities. It's just going to look different. But things are moving along nicely with the strategies we already have in place. And again, we follow the, the activities guidelines because we're a part of that Keisha entity as well. So.
great. Thank you. I think that's it for the presentation. I have a few closing remarks and then if you have any questions. Um, just, as a, just as an overview from uh, Dr. Ariola's guidance, again, he shared with us today that we can proceed with sports and extracurricular activities, that they are going to be uh, adjusting the gating criteria, but those are not yet adjusted, which means I do not have authority to implement this guidance until they're part of the gating criteria. Uh, and this applies for all sports, high, medium, and low risk. Uh, we need to have insurance that we have appropriate safety precautions to minimize risk, which you've seen an overview of some of those. We need to uh, have steps that include things like cohorting to minimize the number of contacts, preventative random sampling of tests. As a test become available, we're going to be a partner in that testing program. That's going to be key to both uh, our academic success, and by that I mean getting students in school and keeping them in school. I think it's going to help with that, but it'll also help with extracurricular programs as well. And so, um, those are all really important considerations as we as we think about next steps. A um, couple of other things, again, as a reminder, that uh, he recommends that we should be uh, limiting spectator attendance to only immediate family members, and then monitoring systems symptoms uh, if uh, students or staff demonstrate those. You know, that's one of the disturbing things you hear sometimes is that people aren't uh, reporting symptoms. I will tell you, we're going to be very strict about this. If, if somebody's symptomatic, then we need to get them tested. And if we need to quarantine, we'll do that in ways that uh, adhere with the health guidance, period. Uh, the guidance is the guidance, and we're going to follow it. And that's something that we've emphasized with our coaches is uh, this is not a matter of uh, uh, for any of us choosing to follow some of the guidance but not all of it. We, we follow it, period. <laughs> so that's going to be important for all of us as we, as we go through the 2021 uh, 20, school year. And then um, those, are the main, those are the main reminders here of uh, just things to consider from Dr. Ariola's perspective. And I thank him for being a great partner with us and trying to, to identify solutions to what are some really challenging uh, problems that we're trying to solve. Um, I'm going to seek a motion from Mary, and we'll get a second, and then we can have some discussion before we vote. Um, so I'll go ahead and seek one from you, Mary, at this point. In recognition of updated guidance from Dr. Ariola, the director of the Johnson County Department of Health and Environment, provided to Dr. Fulton just earlier today, which states that Dr. Ariola is okay with Shawnee Mission, proceeding with sports and extracurricular activities, that JCDHE will be adjusting the gating criteria soon, and that appropriate safety precautions to minimize risks should be taken for all sports, and in recognition of the numerous academic physical and social benefits of participation in extracurricular athletics and activities by our students. I move that the board authorize Dr. Fulton to immediately resume extracurricular athletics and activities in a manner that is consistent with the rules, protocols, and guidelines issued by the JCDHE, the Depart Kansas Department of Health and Environment, the Kansas State High School Associations, Activities Association, the Sunflower League, 
and school administration designed to address, co designated to uh, address COVID-19. Is there a second? Borkman second. Thank you, Ms. Borkman. Um, I'm going to go ahead and open it up for discussion really quick. If anybody wants to make some comments, um, we can work our way around the table. Go ahead, Ms. Borgman. So um, essentially, Dr. Ariola has given us the green light to move forward um, with all sports, regardless of the risk category. Um, that gating criteria is going to be adjusted. Do we know when JCDHE will have the adjusted gating criteria? Is it a matter of days? Is it a matter of weeks? Is it? I, I'm not sure. Okay. I imagine there's some process steps they have to go through, but they'll keep us updated on progress that they're making on updating the gating criteria, but I don't have a, a date when that would be available. Okay. So this resolution um, is in essence the bridge that would, should we approve it, would allow us to go ahead with it until we see something from JCDHE that says, that has it in writing, correct? That, that is correct. And it's also something that uh, once we receive that, if we feel like there's any updates to, to our current resolution we need to do, we can do that at a later time as well. Okay. But this is, bridge is a good, is a good word to use. Okay. Just one question at a time and then go. Yeah, that'd be great. Can you address, I don't know if it's you or, or others, um, over the summer when we were doing conditioning, we did have some of our high school teams that had to go into quarantine because there were um, exposures. Can you address what's different now from over the summer that we think that won't happen again? We absolutely can. Mr. Kramer can come up because we, we uh, because of contact tracing, uh, we we understand the, the story behind that and explain it. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Actually, through our athletic protocols that I just explained, I can tell you that we did not have one sport exposure. Those exposures came from outside the environment that we created. And and that's always going to be the worry is when they're with us and we control the environment is when they leave. And again, it's the responsibility of those participants and families to follow those guidelines when they're not with us. So, and I think Shelby, I don't know if you got anything to add to that, but our exposures have come from outside our environment. Just to, just to clarify, we, um, isolation is when you're ill. So someone has been diagnosed with a positive case and they isolate for 10 days. Quarantine is when you um, were potentially exposed. And if you recall, um, I was an army of one over the summer months. You know, we didn't have all of our nurses to conduct case investigation and contact tracing. So we always erred on the side of caution in quarantining people who were potentially exposed. So we never identified a single case that was um, a positive case from an exposure that occurred in one of our um, athletic facilities. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. Ed? No question. Thank you. Dr. Sinclair? Um, uh, I, I have a comment, so I'm going to pass for, for time for sake of see if there's any other questions, and then I might have a comment to make. Second pass. Okay. Um, 
I want to, I guess I don't, I don't actually have a question either. I also have a comment, but I, my child participated in conditioning this summer, and um, I felt like the athletic department at North handled it very well. Um, like, I felt like it was orderly and organized and regimented. Um, I appreciate Dr. Ariola's information and guidance today and the ongoing relationship that you've worked with the other superintendents and especially with the health department. Um, I think the saliva testing last week was a game changer. I'm looking forward to seeing how that rolls out. But for us, we said we would follow the guidance of the epidemiologist and the epidemiologist at issue is saying he is okay with proceeding with sports and extracurricular activities. I will say I have some concerns that people will socially distance. <laughs> so that is on my mind. Um, are, we, are there rules and policies in place to where if you're not maintaining risk mitigation strategies that you can then not participate in sports? Will we place an obligation on our students to participate in risk mitigation? I know Dr. Ariel's statement said there should be consequences if you are not following risk mitigation protocol. And so if you, if you fail to follow risk mitigation, does that mean that you are not allowed to participate? Because I don't, I don't know that people will follow risk mitigation unless they are required to. I'll have Mr. Kramer address that. I think that goes back to the protocols they develop the training that occurs with coaches and the expectations that we set for all participants. Right. It, it, it comes down to us being responsible and it's educating our coaches that when those things happen, we're not perfect. I will tell you that we're not perfect. Our guidelines, and we're going to be like great teachers. We're going to monitor and adjust and make those changes as needed. We're going to find out what's weak, what needs to be shored up, and then it's our responsibility to make sure that happens. And it would probably start from the least evasive, that it might be a warning. It's constantly working and building that relationship with, with, with the players that they have on the team. As far as punitive, we, ha we haven't got there, and I hope we wouldn't have to get there. And I would say to, to the players today, as, again, it's that self-responsibility and your coach demanding you exceed the expectation. You don't live the expectation, you exceed the expectation. And, and that's what I'm telling our ADs and our coaches. It's not about the expectation. It's exceeding it and going above and beyond for the safety of our kids. So we would start at the lowest level and work our way up. And I'd like to think that we could make those corrections and make them quickly. So I'm thinking in my mind we have <clears throat> restrictions with regards to drug use or other sorts of activity that you are then not permitted to participate in sports. And drug use only impacts the student, his or herself, whereas failure to follow risk mitigation would then place the entire team and whoever else you're playing at risk. I think that that is um, fairly significant. <laughs> so it's interesting. I don't know that I would see keeping someone from playing sports if they're using illegal substances is punitive, I would see that just as a, a consequence of failure to behave responsibly. Um, I, so I guess I, I have significant concerns based off of evidence presented this evening 
that we are going to have um, mitigation with fidelity. So. Well, and that's something that we can continue to talk about Absolutely. and take whatever steps are necessary to address that. You know, we're we're at I. On this pandemic, we all hope that it ends quickly, that a vaccine is right around the corner. But if it's not, and this goes on for a considerable length of time, we have to develop a whole, a whole new set of behaviors in order to successfully navigate this as a community. And we are responsible for ourselves, but we're also responsible for one another. And so those are the sorts of things that we can talk about uh, as we evaluate as Mr. Kramer was saying, you know, what's working, what isn't, and what adjustments do we need to make accordingly? We, we meet weekly as a group. The ADs, we meet weekly, sometimes bi-weekly. And those will all be discussion items. That's something I can take away from this meeting tonight, is that we do have to have something in place for that when it happens. And that could either be through the coaches, team rules, or through the expectation of the AD that this is what will happen to try to reduce and eliminate those violations. There may be a policy piece involved with that as well we can explore. Like, there could be, and we won't, we won't hesitate to address that if we feel like that's necessary. Thank you. Ms. Goodburn? Um, yeah, so crowds at the games. Um, you mentioned that maybe uh, we would limit the um, parents, maybe just the immediate family to actually enter the game. I'm worried about scenes like outside here, happening outside the gates of the school, a Friday night football game, and a bunch of middle schoolers and high schoolers decide that they're just going to start hanging out in the parking lot and watch the game over the fence. So do we have a strategy in place with our security or whatever to not have that happen? I don't, I don't want to have crowds at these games like we saw right outside our window. I, w I would totally agree. And there will be supervision at all our games. All administrators will be on deck and on duty. Our police officers will be there also to enforce any law enforcement issues that have to be uh, taken care of for groups that won't leave, that are insubordinate to an administrative uh, directive uh, for the safety of our patrons and community. So there will be ample supervision at those meets. And when we're talking about our spectator uh, policy, which we've developed the framework and we're going to solidify that tomorrow morning, um, those will be part of that protocol by making sure that we have a number of people in areas that could possibly congregate with groups. Mm -hmm. So we talked about it. I think we have a plan in place. We won't know until it actually happens. But again, it's getting that out and educating our community before those events happen. This is what we want to see and expectation and to have somebody out there so when it starts to happen, you stop it. You don't wait till it happens. You're proactive, and you have some withedness to know that it could, so you're there, and you prevent it. Thank you. <clears throat> I just have one other one, but I'll wait until my turn around. Okay. I'm, I would like just clarification of what the advice from Dr. Ariola really is, because this seems like the least ringing endorsement I've ever heard for sports. Okay with SMSD proceeding, <laughs> does not inspire a lot of confidence. Could you provide any more context, Dr. Fulton, on what guidance the health department really has? Because I think not only Dr. Ariola, but the CDC, Children's Mercy, um, the National High School Athletics Association has been pretty consistent around not only the fact that there may be times when sports are unsafe in communities, but also 
that risk is not the same across all sports. So golf is a different risk level than, than football. So I would like some more context on what we're really hearing from the health department. Well, I think I'm taking it verbatim now for context. When they developed the gating criteria, they went specifically to the National Association's document. The, the definitions for high, medium, and low risk actually come from the National uh, the National Federation that deals with high school activities and athletics. So that is a, those are commonly uh, understood definitions. And by that I mean there are certain sports and activities ascribed to high risk, medium risk, and low risk. When they put their gating document together, what they did is they said, okay, under certain, uh, when we're at certain levels of, of transmission, if we're in the yellow zone or the red zone, Here's what is or is not allowed. That document was developed. Um, there is one district left that's following it. It's us. And I think what they're recognizing is is that there is absolutely across our county a lot of activities and sports going on both in schools and outside of schools. And as part of that work of working with community health, they're recognizing that they have to look at the total picture of what's happening. And so what they've done with us is they, is they said, look, we recognize that there's some risk involved, but if you're going to engage in these activities, just like everybody else is, then you, there are certain criteria, certain guidance that we can give to you and every other district for that matter to follow. And so that is, I, I mean, the, the, uh, the statement that he provided, I'm taking it verbatim. And we, it goes right back to our, to our key point that we've been making is we want to work as partners with them and we need to follow their guidance. We need their guidance, we need to follow their guidance. And uh, this is guidance that he provided to us today. So we're thankful for that. Now if the guidance would have come out differently, then we would have followed that guidance. Madam. Yes. Um, I just want to clarify, in my motion, I did not mean to diminish the gravity of Dr. Ayo's um, recommend clarification in the gating criteria to us by pulling out a couple of sentences to shorten a motion. Um, so, and I, I'm glad you brought that to light through your question because my intent was not to convey any casualness in the, the clarification that he provided us. So thank you for making sure that that was clear. Ms. Bergman. So in activities, um, obviously, for, let's just take football for example, we have at the, you know, at our games we have band, we have cheerleaders, we have the dance team. Um, are those groups of students able to also be a part of the experience? And then also, um, can those parents, those immediate family members, if, if, if those groups are allowed, can those family members also come and watch? And then also, I mean, I know there's, there's other groups like the Spirit Club, are those kids allowed, students allowed? I mean, where do we draw the line? Where do we draw the line with immediate family members? Help me understand a better picture of what an activity such as football would look like. Well, currently, um the discussion and in the league, uh, for instance, Mill Valley does three tickets per athlete um, for any member of that family that wants to be there. Cheerleaders that attend, 
because cheerleaders would be there because we can social distance, they work and wear a mask. Um, dance can still perform with a mask on, social distancing at halftime. Uh, Bill will be working with his directors to see if music wants to either go with a pep band and those parents would get tickets. Anybody that's got someone that's participating in the event will get X number of tickets. We are not at this point allowing anything other than the amount of tickets that we're giving out to those players. We don't have a student section. So a student section would not be uh, allowed. It would be those tickets that those players are given to who what they want to invite. Coaches, players, cheerleaders, band. And so we have to be cognizant of the fact that our capacity at our different venues can only hold so much with social distancing. So it's possible in football, since we're playing large stadiums, that could either be three tickets or four tickets. Volleyball, since we're in small areas, that may be only two tickets to essential players and coaches and who's ever cheerleaders or if there's a halftime performance. We're looking at, looking at doing royalty crownings uh, virtual over the big scoreboards where we'll tape that earlier and then play it on the video boards to, again, to try to limit the exposure. Uh, we're not allowing anyone near the field to play other than players and coaches and trainers. Uh, everybody's to stay in the stands. And it's, when it's appropriate, you come down and do your performance. So they would all have an opportunity to be there. The only thing that we wouldn't be doing is having a student section. May I ask a follow-up? Yeah, go ahead. So, like, for soccer, for example, when JV plays before varsity, um, are we requesting that parents leave the soccer stadium? Like, the JV parents, are we requesting that the JV parents leave the soccer stadium? So, if their kid's done playing, <coughs> or can they stay and then also watch varsity? Or, like, how does that look? That's, that's a great question. It depends on the venue. If we're at the stadiums playing... Probably we would have enough room, enough space to accommodate both parties there. If we're out at Westridge, we would probably have those games uh, scheduled a little farther apart. So there could be an hour between varsity and JV so that we could clear and then allow the varsity group to have the stands. The Westridge stands are much smaller, and so that's a smaller venue with a smaller amount of tickets. Most likely, if you're a soccer and you're playing at Westridge, you'll get two tickets. Where if you're a soccer player and you're at the stadium, you most likely get three or four tickets. And it also depends on the size of the team. You know, football is going to have 60, probably 60 players on that sideline, where a volleyball team may only have 12, or a soccer will only have 20. So all those would be in consideration of, of the number of tickets allowed and where the venue is. So we're trying to move more soccer games. Once we, if we get the approval, we would look at moving more soccer games to our stadiums, north and south, so that we could have a larger capacity and try to provide as much spectator attendance as we could. Does that answer that? Yeah, thank you. <clears throat> I have a lot of questions, so you, you might just have to keep circling back. Um, so we have some um, student-athletes who will need to choose to not play this year because their family doctor um, has said that either the athlete or someone in the athlete's immediate family is high risk. Um, can, 
can you assure those students that assuming by next year there's a vaccine or we're in a different place that they might be able to return to that sport I think it would be heartbreaking <coughs> for a student to feel like they had to their sophomore that you know they'd have to give it up forever um, I guess just an assurance that that this is a decision for this year for this time of the pandemic but it doesn't have to be the decision forever if their doctor says that it's best for them to not participate this year um, I don't I don't really worry about that because I, I one of the number one things you do as a coach is you build a relationship so those players that have been out participated in for the unfortunate reason they have a family member or themselves and they can't participate, I'd like to think our coaches and ADs will have a spot for that student, no matter what the circumstances are, whether it's COVID or a family issue before that. We want participation. And even of those students, even those few sports that cut, I'd like to think that we have room for students that want to show effort and be a part of something. I think that's extremely important that if you want to be a part of something, you should be given that opportunity. So we, we try not to cut a lot, and there are some sports that have to, um, but I'd like to think that our coaches and ADs would respond to those students that have that need, that there's always going to be a place for them with their school. You know, I can't guarantee that, but gosh, I'd like to think just like we do in the classroom, you build that relationship, you bring them in and they're part of you and they're part of your group and they're part of you and we use family all the time. And you know, that's what we want to have, see happen. Mr. Patton, you good? <coughs> okay, I'm good for now, Ms. Goodburn. So um, waivers, um, I've read quite a few emails over the last few weeks and some parents have mentioned waivers that they'd be happy to sign one. Do we have a waiver for for sports that had anything to do with COVID? That we don't. Parents understood the, the risks and the student understood the risks and they're wanting to take the risk anyway. Well, every student is knows that there's a warning of risk when they sign up to play an activity. That's built in, that risk. Uh, we do not, at this point, I don't want to speak out of turn, but we do not have a COVID waiver that I know of that all our athletes sign before they participate. They know that there is a risk involved in each one of their activities. So I, I, we do not have a specific COVID waiver at this point. Okay, thanks. <clears throat> I would just ask if we anticipate, as Dr. Ariola has said, that there are going to be some changes to the gating criteria. We really don't know what those will look like in any way, shape, or form. They could be more or less restrictive around athletics. Correct. Yes, I, I don't know. I don't. I don't know what the changes will be. And the motion on the table would be effective immediately around. Athletics and activities? I mean, I guess maybe this is not a question, but a comment. I think hearing how careful and methodical we're being around getting elementary students back into buildings and how we're building in all of this time for safety procedures and how we really do kind of have some open questions around athletics gives me pause. I think it'd be wonderful to know something like 
if there's repeated outbreaks by the same team, we might actually not let that team compete anymore. Like having some sort of idea of how we're going to ensure that we do this safely. I, I feel much more confident in our ability to provide safe and in-person instruction than I do about activities and athletics. And I think turning on a dime gives me pause. I mean, I, I don't know. It's probably an operational question, I guess, for you, Dr. Fulton, is, is how confident do you feel that we can safely offer athletics and activities as of tomorrow? Well, I know that uh, there's been, as, as Mr. Kramer went through, and they can come, maybe both he and uh, Shelby can come up if they want. There have been a lot of safety protocols already put into place. So that I feel good about. And we've been doing that in cooperation with KU Med. So do you, if you guys want to talk about some of those safety protocols, because that's, that's an important question. You know, what, what are we ready to do right now? What, what training have people had? What are we prepared to do? I, I think it's a great question. I, f I feel good about answering it because we've done it. This is not like we start this brand new tomorrow or the next day. We started this in June. We had a lot of practice with it. And then we did it again on August 17th. So I feel really confident. We've got it down. We know what we need to do. It comes down to that responsibility that we have to follow these guidelines. There's no compromising. You follow these protocols to fidelity. And I think we've done that in June, in July, and then we did it again for five days in August. So I feel confident that we've done it enough and we've practiced it enough and our coaches know it. I think our athletes have been through it. They know it. Uh, I can never guarantee, but I feel really comfortable that we've practiced all these. So it's not just our first time uh, doing this. We've had plenty of opportunity to practice it, correct it, add to it and make it stronger. And it's just as strong as it's going to be right now. And it'll only get stronger because we will continue to monitor and adjust as we move forward. So, Shelby, you want to add anything? Well, I would just add, as Mr. Kramer went through this information tonight, I mean, it took me back to April when we were creating all of these documents. And it took me back to this summer and driving home and driving by some of the practice fields and watching these coaches and athletes actually implement to the exact specifications of what we said. I mean, that, that was very comforting. Um, I, will, I will give you a little bit of a preview. So all of the district nurses, all of the county nurses meet with the um, health department tomorrow at four, as we do every week. And there has been a lot of talk amongst us of um, the severity of the illness, the, the lack of severity of the illness that we're seeing. And that's countywide in adults and, and children all the way through. So all of this work, I mean, I have six staff members that are, develop, that are dedicating full time to um, contact tracing and case investigation of our staff. Um, and not that we're not seeing cases. We are seeing cases, and we will see cases in athletics. We will. The thing is, is if they can stick to the protocols um, with fidelity, we're not going to see a, a ton of cases, hopefully. Just like I said this summer, we didn't see a ton. Um, so if the athletes and the coaches can do that and the severity of the illness does not increase from what we're seeing right now, 
Um, I think all of the nurses are telling the county health department we want some changes uh, because this is so much work for very little return. Now, I also, um, you know, the other side of that coin is that I am a person in our district who does get notified when we have um, kids on ventilators and when we have deaths in our hospitals. I do know of those things. Not the general public may not know of that. And it does weigh, it does weigh on me. But there's, there's this um, reality of what we're living in. Every other district is doing this. And so it's, um, it's, it's hard. I, I, I don't envy your guys' position at all. I guess I'd ask because it feels like a similar operational question. How are we so prepared to flip the switch on the athletic side and so ill-prepared to get elementary students into school? Because that's where my heart is breaking is the fact that we're going to have students competing before we have kindergartners in buildings and we're a school district. It is really hard to so, sit in this seat and know that that's what's happening. And I think, um, and Mr. Kramer, you can add to this, but we've had a lot of discussions about this. The thing is, athlete, the, our athletics has been going on all summer long, whereas kids just started. So these, they've had the chance to practice. Our coaches have been doing these things all summer long. We put this stuff back into play in April. But um, our students are just now starting. And I don't know if you've seen, seen any of the online videos where the teachers are starting to help the students build their mask tolerance and things like that. They're just now starting, whereas athletes have been doing it since well, June. 15th. June. Anything further? Okay. All right. <laughs> Ms. Bergman. Um, and Ms. Sembury, I just, I, I hear you and, and I appreciate you sharing that. I, one thing I wrote down was um, from the summer, there were no sports exposures due to COVID. It was all outside exposures. So that did make me feel better for what it's worth. Um, just, just wanted to reiterate what I heard. Um, so my question, is this for just fall sports or is this for winter? Like, what does it look like moving forward with regarding activities? I guess I shouldn't just limit it to sports. I should say activities. I apologize. Uh, I think this this guidance applies from this point forward, unless and until we were to receive new guidance. Okay, great. So, basketball, wrestling, it's all. Uh, you know, I think that's something that they're going to continue to probably evolve in their thinking on it. But that's. For, for right now, this is the guidance that we have. Okay. And then I guess my comment regarding um, if, if we adopt a policy, I think it would be great. Um, Shelby, you kind of inspired me um, when you were talking about the nurses and the feedback from the nurses is if we could perhaps even do sort of random team audits where perhaps a nurse or an administrator could just pop in to a practice and just make sure that um, the the pages and pages of, you know, all the protocols are being followed. Um, I think that would be very helpful to make sure that, you know, we're doing what we say we're going to do to keep kids and coaches safe. I have it written down. So we're talking about sports and activities. And so I'm thinking about all kinds of extracurricular activities that happen. And, and let me clarify, we're just talking about high school level, right? This is Correct. not apply to middle school or elementary. But there's all kinds of high school 
clubs and extracurricular activities. There's debate and there's Spanish club and there's all kinds of things. Are we saying that all of those extracurricular activities can start tomorrow or whenever we decide that things can start? I have Mr. Kramer come up and Dr. Hubbard may be able to help with that as well. Uh, currently, it's just for the Keisha activities. Uh, we're not really, since we're not at the remote sites, middle schools, all their activities are postponed till January. And at the high school level, until we get to that in-person piece, there are no clubs and nothing happening other than Keisha activities. Debate is Keisha, so debate will have a season. So currently, that's what that entails right now. Okay. Mr. Stratton? Okay. Dr. Sinclair? Okay. Ms. Embry? Um, I would like to understand, I think some of the guidance from Dr. Ariola focused on the fact that starting to allow these activities and extracurriculars could actually compromise our ability to maintain as much in-person instruction as we are going to slowly be transitioning to. So if we have higher community transmission because of activities and athletics and we get into that black zone, we may not be able to offer any elementary instruction at all. So I think my question is, you know, I know some districts are saying no matter what, if you're doing athletics, you cannot be in person for school because they're trying to really keep that barrier of transmission between activities and instruction. And under this scenario, what plans would we put in place that would lower the risk of athletes being exposed and then bringing it into our schools and impacting kids who aren't doing extracurriculars and activities, who are just there to learn? Sure, good question. That's one of the things that we'll have to start to work on immediately is that, that whole cohorting concept. Um, you know, we're okay for the moment because we're remote, but as we start to look at bringing students into school, then we're going to have to work on some strategies for cohorting and making sure that uh, students are uh, protected. The other piece of that, too, is, and this is what we don't know yet, I'm hopeful that some of the uh, testing um, uh, strategies will help us as well. But again, we, we've got to work closely with the department on that because I know they're still looking at what's the scope of what their, um, what their testing protocols will be. So that's, that's the other piece of it. And he kind of lays that out, you know, working on trying to get cohorting strategies, adding testing into it, and making sure all these safety protocols that we've been talking about are included with it. Ms. Borgman? Reverend Guy? Um, I think I've asked most of my questions. Um, I, I mean... I somewhat agree with Mrs. Hembry that it, I'm uneasy about talking about opening up sports when we're not at a place when we can open up um, in-person instruction yet. And the chance that sports could then cause us to increase cases so that we can't go back to in-person uh, makes me very nervous as well. Um, I appreciate that we have erred on the side of caution and have listened to the Johnson County Health Department. Um, but I, I understand uneasiness too. These are not easy decisions. They're not, they're not clear cut. There's no one right answer. And so I appreciate this conversation. Um, 
And we're wrestling. Every school board in the country is wrestling with these decisions. Thank you. I think we're at the comment phase. Did you want to say a comment or no? Mary? Yeah, Mary. Mm -hmm. um, I want to um, address my comment, if that's okay, to some of our um, uh, students here um, in the in the room. And I assume maybe that um, you all are are captains or leaders, and that's why you were selected to be in here. And so um, I applaud you for that recognition by your peers to be um, appointed a, a captain. And you have stepped up into that role in a really auspicious time. And so you have, I think, an added, um, I, I have faith in your ability to take on this kind of additional role in being a leader for your team and, and for your um, peers. I think Dr. Fulton um, acknowledged that we're not only responsible for ourselves, but we're in this period of COVID-19, we're responsible for one another. And as you can see this board, we're responsible for part of the leadership of our district. And we not only um, uh, have the authority within the district to make choices, but we were relying on our partners in our community. We're relying on the Department of, of Health to provide guidance to help us you know, to give that expertise from the epidemiologists and those professionals to help us make better choices for our community. We're responsible for the business owners in this community. We, none of us in this room, I think, want to contribute to a, a situation in which we trigger an outbreak. So we have that personal responsibility to wear masks, to social distance. And um, I, I just wanted to um, acknowledge, I think, our, our, uh, my faith in you and to be able to um, uh, be the voice of, of students and your capacity to really step up, to step up in this period of time, not only on the field, but off the field. So we all, and we'll all continue to, to do our part in um, helping to mitigate and allow not only you all to get back to sports and to get in school, but to stay in school and to continue a full season um, as we kind of progress through this year. So. I, Thank you for your leadership. Does anyone have any final comments that they would like to add? Can I ask one more question? Sorry, I don't yeah. know. Um, I just want to put out there the possibility, you know, all of the JCDHE stuff does differentiate between low, medium, and high-risk sports. And I think conceiving of all of these sports as being equal risk levels for our students and equal risk levels for transmission is not accurate compared to how they actually will play out. So I think it's something we should all be prepared for that the gating criteria may come out from the health department that does make um, different accommodations for different sports that based on their inherent, the, the inherent riskiness of the sport. I don't know where that leaves us with this amendment, but I think it's certainly um, pretty consistent public health advice that not all sports are equally risky when it comes to COVID transmission. So I think because we adopted the JCDHE gating criteria, if they update it and we've adopted that, we would automatically be bound to the JCDHE gating criteria even if it was updated. And this is a bridge that allows Dr. Fulton to implement guidance from Dr. Ariola today, but doesn't actually alter our whereas statement, um, and we could potentially alter the whereas statement to re-adopt criteria should it 
and to update it even because KSDE's criteria wasn't out when we initially voted. Um, so that would be something to consider as well. But it's my understanding procedurally, all this does is give Dr. Fulton the authority to implement sports and activities tomorrow. But if JCDHE were to come out and say, this is the gating criteria and these high risk activities are done and out, I think that at that point that would be controlling. And if I'm not understanding that procedurally accurately, I would like guidance to correct that. From my perspective, that would be accurate. And per this, it would be, uh, I've heard tomorrow mentioned a couple of times, it's immediately per the per what we have here, but yes, I mean, this is, this gives me specific authority until such time as the gating criteria is updated, and at that, that point, we probably have to have some more conversation. Okay. I have no, again, I have no idea what the gating criteria is, any changes would address at this point. And tomorrow, what would be starting would be practices. So yeah, there's they, so many days where they have to do practices and conditioning before they can play. Right. And so under, is that under, like nine under days this, or? Well, under this, uh, if this were approved, then practices could start immediately. There are some guidelines that different teams have, uh, but I don't know if we want to go into it now, but basically they can start and then the clock starts today and then they can make a decision and then that would either set them up for competition or, or not at a certain point in time when they've met the Keshe requirements. Dr. Sinclair has one other comment. Um, I just wanted to um, acknowledge the, the work of the, um, at the state level. I think we're all um, frustrated that the speed of decision making and resources can't be done faster. It's, no, it's not lost on me and I'm sure anyone in this room that you have to wait another week because of you know, when we got clarification from Johnson County, had, had, the, had the clarification come yesterday, you might be one week faster into getting back onto the field. So that, that recognition is not lost. So there is a shared frustration in the timing and how, how quickly we can all adapt and make um, good choices around the conditions that we face. But I, I wanted to acknowledge the work of the uh, state uh, SPARC committee. They forwarded a proposal that would increase to the, um, the state, uh, the State Finance Council, so a proposal was forwarded this morning to the State Finance Council that will meet Friday that will in, to look to increase testing capacity. That is a game changer for us. If the more we uh, testing capacity we can have, the safer we can kind of move about. So I want to acknowledge the work of the state and also the county to increase testing capacity. That's a, that, again, is a game changer for us. So critical work. Um, and I'm going to jump back to the elementary piece because the other uh, part of the proposal that the um, SPARC committee, that's that state level committee allocating our federal CARES Act dollars, also forwarded a proposal that will be considered this Friday to look at um, adding capacity for remote learning sites. So when our kids are, our elementary kids age, I believe it's targeting um, uh, the elementary age kids um, for the most part, but so that proposal, I think it would be really important that our community pay, you know, kind of look to um, that announcement Friday to see what kind of increased capacity our counties will have 
to support that, um, those remote learning days. And um, that, again, there's a recognition of our partners in trying to, to move through this period of um, this global pandemic. Um, partners that are trying to rec that acknowledge and recognize all of the challenges in um, the disruption to schools. So, thank you for that. Just my my comment, I guess, is I think we can do two things at one time. I think we can get elementary kids in, um, and also give secondary kids something to, you know, be excited about. Um, I know that. And a lot of the public comment that we had heard at the listening session, um, you know, parents were very concerned about the mental health of their student. And so giving them an activity, um, I think, is very beneficial for a lot of kids to get them motivated to do virtual learning. Um, and so I, I think we don't have to have one or the other. We don't have to have just focus on elementary or just focus on activities. I think we can we can do two things at once. We're smart enough, big enough. We have the staff in place. And so I hope we're not looking at this as um, we can only have one thing. I think we can do two things, and I think we can do them well. Um, so I just wanted to provide that that just comment. And then um, I just wanted to end with um, I thought Dr. Kramer had the best quote of the night for our students. Um, you don't live the expectation. You exceed the expectation. And so the expectation is, if this is approved, it's yours. I mean, it's, it's yours to lose, essentially. And so we have to do everything we can to make sure that if this is approved, we don't lose it. So that is on you. And we're here to support you. We're here to set you up for success. But ultimately, the decision is yours. So... I believe in you. I believe in each one of you. And I know how bad that you guys want this. Do we have any other final comments from board members prior to the vote? I'll recognize any board member. I don't care about the order. I'll, I'll just make a, a brief comment that um, I think where I feel the saddest is that I wish we were applying this level of urgency and creative thinking and strict adherence to protocol and bringing new motions to the floor to get our elementary kids into school as quickly as possible in person five days a week, which is what JCDG has approved since the end of July. So the fact that it has taken us six weeks to get to a point where we can even give people five weeks of notice that their kids will start coming into school feels so slow and laborious and careful and methodical. And then on something like activities and athletics where I understand we're the last district standing, we're just flipping a switch and making it happen. And I wish we could apply that same level of diligence to in-person instruction because ultimately I believe we are here to educate kids and to the extent that activities and extracurriculars can be a complimentary experience, that's wonderful. I understand my kids are littler, but I know for so many of you out there, your activities are what puts you in the classroom every day and they're incredibly meaningful, you and I, meaningful for you and I don't want to diminish that, but I also think there is a real risk that if we do this and do this poorly, it's going to detract from our ability to, to provide in-person instruction for our kids. And I worry really greatly about that because it feels like it's our first and foremost obligation to our community. That's my comment. Okay, I'm not seeing any further hands or 
head nods to that effect. So we will call the vote at this time. I think we probably ought to roll call this one. I think people will be curious. So I mean, if we could do that, Terry, can you call the roll for this vote, please? Yes. Jamie Borgman? Yes. Burn Guy, Laura Guy? Aye. Yes. Yes. Brad Stratton? Aye. Mary Sinclair? Yes. Heather Owsley? Nay. Okay. Um, Sarah Goodburn? Yes. And Jessica Hembry? Nay. Okay. Five yes and two no. Motion passes. Thank you, Terry. All right, with that, I think we can adjourn the meeting.